Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Sarah Thompson, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit, or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Chronic kidney disease, or CKD, affects about 15% of adults in the U.S. and develops most commonly from poorly controlled diabetes and hypertension. Early prevention is key to successful management. Multiple newer agents, originally approved for other comorbidities, have boasted their ability to assist in this endeavor. Pharmacist Lauren Stonerock will discuss goals for management of CKD, review newer agents and their evidence for preventing further deterioration of kidney function, and highlight the role of the pharmacist in treating these patients. And today I really want to make sure we're defining chronic kidney disease and those risk factors for both development and progression of chronic kidney disease, as well as looking at our current recommendations and evidence behind some of these renal protective therapies that we should be starting in these patients, and describing the optimal role of our pharmacists for caring for these patients as well. So first and foremost, let's go ahead and get some fun facts out of the way with chronic kidney disease. So according to the CDC, one in seven or 15% of the U.S. adult population is diagnosed with CKD, and nine in 10 patients are actually unaware that they have CKD. It's most common in our non-Hispanic Black adult patients, followed by Hispanic patients, and then white and Asian adults. So there's a lot of ways for the kidneys to develop chronic kidney disease, uh, but the most common that's associated with diabetes and hypertension um, is, is really that intrinsic glomerular disease. And so that's characterized by glomerular sclerosis, which is hardening of those vessels that help filter the blood. Um, and, and that actually leads to loss of our functioning of the nephron. And so over time, as these nephrons are starting to die, um, the nephrons that are still left actually experience glomerular hyperfiltration, which puts a lot of stress and pressure on those, um, those nephrons, and those actually start to become glomerular sclerosed. So it really becomes this vicious cycle um, of, of rendering the kidney pretty unfunctional. So we have to make sure that we know how to classify chronic kidney disease. So there's two different ways to do that. That's the GFR, the glomerular filtration rate, um, and that goes from anywhere from G1 to G5. G1 is, you know, very normal kidney function, GFR of 90 or more. And G5 is what we kind of think of our, of our patients who need dialysis, um, and that's less than 15. And then we also need to look at the urine albumin to creatinine ratio, or the UACR, which really tells us, you know, how really damaged are those nephrons that are allowing proteins to slip through and be excreted through the urine. So that UACR kind of helps us um, predict both of these really together, help predict, you know, um, end-stage renal disease, that risk for progression, as well as all-cause mortality and CB death. And so UACR, um, less than 30 is, again, normal. 30 to 300 is what we would call microalbuminuria, and 300 or more is that macroalbuminuria. There's also this um, great um, risk calculator on MD Health that um, I utilize in my practice um, to really help us kind of guide those conversations with our patients to, you know, whether we need to start new therapies and things like that. Um, and it is the kidney failure risk calculator. And it really helps say, okay, in the next five years, this is your percentage of developing end-stage renal disease. And so let's go ahead and talk about some of our risk factors and how to manage those. So diabetes is actually the most common risk factor for developing chronic kidney disease. As many as 40% of patients with diabetes have concomitant CKD. 
And it's really actually the leading cause of end-stage renal disease as well. High blood pressure is right up there with diabetes. And then it's followed by heart disease, family history of kidney failure, obesity, older age, as well as past damage to the kidneys. And so I wanted to dive in just a little bit more specifically to our diabetes-specific risk factors as it is that most common cause. Um, and, you know, thinking about modifiable versus non-modifiable risk factors, what can we do to help prevent our patients from developing uh, an end-stage renal disease? And that's really important just because diabetic nephropathy, on average, the GFR can decrease by at least 10 mils per minute per year, which is pretty significant. So our modifiable risk factors, things that we can change is, of course, hyperglycemia and hypertension, as well as dyslipidemia, obesity, smoking, and exposure to those nephrotoxic agents. Non-modifiable are things like age, ethnicity, and sex, as well as family history of CKD and longer duration of diabetes. So that kind of gets us to our goals. So in terms of diabetes, you know, we really want to target that A1C goal of less than 7%. You know, our landmark trials like DCCT and UKPDS really showed that there was 50 to 70%, 76% decrease in microvascular complications, which is really important. An early institution of that goal of less than 7% is going to be more effective for getting, um, for decreasing the risk for patients to develop end-stage renal disease. And initiating, uh, initiating those renal protective therapies that we're going to talk about in a little bit. And then for hypertension, that um, systolic blood pressure goal of less than 120 is really helpful for decreasing the risk of cardiovascular events. And that comes from the SPRINT trial that even, you know, kind of you're probably thinking, oh, that's a pretty strict blood pressure goal. Um, you know, it really did show more benefit in CV, um, decreasing those CV events than, you know, the risk for AKIs, electrolyte abnormalities, and things of that nature. And then making sure that we're implementing RAS inhibitors, those renin angiotensin system blockers like ACEs and ARBs, to make sure, you know, even in our patients with G1 and A2 and above. So even if they have those normal glomerular filtration rates, if they have any, you know, protein in the urine, we need to start those RAS inhibitors. And then also assessing cardiovascular disease risks. Uh, both GFR of less than 60 as well as a UACR of greater than 30, increase the risk. And then if the patient has both of those, the risk increases even more. So making sure we're you know, assessing that statin therapy, making sure that it's appropriate or initiating it even, and remembering that CKD really is a high-risk condition. So that can help you know, if a patient has multiple higher-risk conditions, you know, having that conversation of risk versus benefit of maybe increasing the intensity of the statin that they're already taking. And then targeting the LDL goal of less than 70, especially for our patients um, without ASCVD. And then for UACR, um, you know, if, they're, if they have macroalbuminuria, even a decrease of 30% or more can really help slow the progression. And if they have CKD and a urine albumin creatinine ratio of more than 300, making sure we start that NARAS inhibitor. And if they have concomitant diabetes and a UACR of 30 or more, making sure we're starting that RAS inhibitor as well. Other goals for treatment include weight management. There really is a correlation of increasing BMI with increased um, end-stage renal disease risk. So targeting goals of BMIs of 20 to 24.9, as well as even a 5 to 15% reduction in body weight can help. In terms of tobacco cessation, I mean, we all know that's bad for us, but in terms of specifically CKD, um, even the chemicals within the cigarette are very nephrotoxic. Um, and it, you know, of course, stopping that can reduce the risk of CBD and CKD progression. 
So really the biggest takeaway from this section is prevention really is the best treatment. So making sure that we're targeting those other risk factors and um, making sure that we can decrease the risk for that progression. All right, so that brings us to our first question. Uh, make sure you get your poll everywhere um, and text mail RX to 22333. Uh, which of the following prevention strategies would help decrease the rate of CKD progression? Awesome. So the majority of you were paying attention. Um, SVP coal of less than 120 would be, um, you know, th the goal for that. Um, A1, A1, A is wrong. Just the A1C goal is less than 7% for, in general, most patients. Of course, there's always exceptions to the rule, but in general, we really want to be strict. Um, and then loss of just 5 to 15% of body weight can help. And then LDL goal um, is actually less than 70 for patients who've not had an ASCVD event. But of course, in accordance with ACC AHA guidelines, if they do have had a clinical ASCVD event, making sure that LDL goal is less than 55. Awesome. Good job, guys. All right. So that's we're really going to get into the meat of, and potatoes um, of, of my presentation today. Um, and just we're going to talk about renal protective therapies. And just a little disclaimer, we're not really going to be discussing, you know, starting an ACE or an ARB. We really have known for quite some time that those really help decrease risk of progression. And in fact, all of these studies that have been done for renal protective therapies were um, with patients already on max tolerated RAS inhibitor, unless they had a very good reason not to be on one. So um, the first one we're going to talk about are SGLT2s, or sodium glucose-like transporter 2 inhibitors. So, you know, most of you may know this is a medication that was originally found for diabetes, and it works in the proximal convoluted tubule of the nephron. And it's going to basically stop the reabsorption of glucose back into the blood, and instead it's going to get excreted out through the urine, and that decreases the concentration of blood glucose. But also, because of that one-to-one -one ratio of sodium and glucose, what, um, sodium also gets excreted. And what follows sodium? Water. And so that's really restoring the tubulogamerular feedback, as well as reducing hyperfiltration and pressure. So there's currently in the United States four SGLT2s on the market, um, empagliflozin, dapagliflozin, canagliflozin, and ertugliflozin. I'm sure you all know now where I got my what's been flozen on. <laughs> um, so um, all of these are FDA approved for type 2 diabetes. Um, but empagliflozin and dapagliflozin actually carry that heart failure um, indication as well. And that means we can use these medications in patients without diabetes. And then also dapagliflozin carries that CKD indication. So for patients that don't have type 2 diabetes and CKD from some other means, we can use that medication. Um, unfortunately, CKD for patients who have CKD because of polycystic kidney disease or require immunosuppressive therapy for kidney disease, we cannot use it for those patients. So we'll go through a little bit. I'm not going to read all of the dosing, but I just want you to be aware, you know, that depending on the indication, the dosing is different. But we really want to focus here on two things. Um, first, the CV benefits. So both empagliflozin and conagliflozin were found to be superior in reducing those major adverse CV events or MACE events. <clears throat> Dapagliflozin and ertugliflozin were non-inferior to placebo for reduction of those events. I also want to direct your attention to the GFR cutoff. So we can really start these medications pretty well into renal impairment. Um, and even if they're, and if they're stable on that medication, if they're starting to dip below their respective GFR cutoff, we can still use these medications um, as, as long as, you know, again, they're stable and we're implementing good monitoring. 
So uh, we also did some, there were some kidney outcome trials as well that we're gonna kind of dive a little bit deeper into. The, there were three. First came Credence, then DAPA-CKD, and EMPA-Kidney. They were all very similar in their setup um, for the most part. So similar size, similar follow-up, um, as well as even similar kidney parameters, a couple you know, little differences here and there. But also that bottom row, that concurrent disease management, just wanna highlight there that all these patients were on those max tolerated RAS inhibitors before starting the study drug. The thing I did wanna direct your attention to though, um, in terms of generalization of these, of these results, is that Credence was only done in type two diabetic patients, whereas DAPA and EMPA were done in patients with and without type two diabetes. So we'll kind of break these down just a little bit. Um, and just to get us started, the primary endpoints between these trials were pretty much very similar. There were a couple very minute differences that I won't really get into, but they were kidney composites. So looking at the um, end-stage renal disease, death from kidney or CV causes, and something to do with the GFR, whether that was doubling of the serum creatinine or some kind of reduction in the GFR. For Credence, again, these were all patients with type 2 diabetes. A1C was moderately high at 8.3%. About half had had a CVD event in the past. And the GFR was, you know, moderately um, decreased at 56. But the primary endpoint, that com kidney composite, was significant with the number needed to treat of 25. And that was really driven by reduction of end-stage kidney disease. And then DAPA-CKD, we almost two-thirds of patients, over two-thirds of patients had type 2 diabetes, um, of, and about a third had a past CVD event. GFR was a little bit worse here with these patients, and number needed to treat was 19. And that was actually driven by two things, both the reduction to end-stage kidney disease as well as all-cause mortality. And then lastly came EMPA-Kidney. This is the most recent trial. It wasn't published that very long ago. Um, less than half of patients had type 2 diabetes, and that GFR was even worse at 37. And the number needed to treat here was 26. And that, um, just like Credence, was really driven by that reduction to end-stage kidney disease, which, you know, when we kind of think about these, you know, line by line, I really think, you know, decreasing the risk to end-stage kidney disease is, is probably pretty important, right? We want to make sure that we're, no one wants to go through dialysis. It's, you know, it's, um, not only taxing on the patient, but also on the healthcare system and in, in, in dollar amounts as well. So, um, you know, I really think that even the number needed to treats here in between all of these are, are pretty clinically insignificant. So I think that these are really good medications for that, um, for that uh, issue. I also wanted to mention a couple of things. So um, for the supplement, for the EMPA kidney trial, like I said, it was, it was just published not too long ago. And so the uh, makers of empagliflozin actually did submit in January um, a supplemental new drug application for adding that CKD indication. So hopefully we'll hear sometime soon about whether we can use that medication in patients without diabetes and CKD. And then a couple other things too. So in a post hoc analysis in the DAPA-CKD trial, um, patients who even ended up on dialysis stayed on this medication. And that really, even the benefits of that cardiovascular benefit really still were, um, were there. So that's also something important to know. Um, 
And so they're actually looking at a little bit more in terms of, you know, can we expand the use of these in our patients with CKD? And so there's a trial that's enrolling right now called the Life Cycle Trial that's looking at starting these medications in patients with a GFR, GFR of less than 20, patients who are already on dialysis who are still make urine, as well as transplant patients. So hopefully we'll hear something more about, you know, if can we really use these in uh, patients who have a, are a little bit further down the line in CKD. So I also want to chat a little bit about adverse effects and some clinical pearls from practice. So a lot of patients and, and you know, providers even think oh, SGLT2s increase risk of GU and tract infections. And I would agree. Um, however, I think there are some caveats and clinical pearls to discuss. Um, there was a meta-analysis done in 2022 that actually just showed an 8% increased risk of GU tract infections. So making sure we're having those conversations with patients, looking at their history, if they've had a significant history of GU tract infections, okay, maybe we wouldn't use this medication. But I have had a couple instances of patients developing a GU and tract infe infection, going ahead and treating it, and they really never got one again. So again, kind of that, you know, what does the patient want to do um, for, these, for these adverse effects and how can we work with the patient there? And some uh, a rare adverse effect is Fournier's gangrene, as well as dipagliflozin does carry a little bit increased risk of bladder cancer. Um, so making sure we're thoroughly looking through the history with that medication. The next three kind of go hand in hand. So hypotension, dehydration, and acute kidney injury. And I really think that that's kind of backed by how well are we counseling our patients on these medications? Um, you know, it does have a diuretic effect. So hypotension may be a really good thing for some of our patients, but you know, if they are on a bunch of different um, blood pressure lowering medications, it may not be so good. So again, counseling on that dehydration is very important. You're also going to run the risk of having more severe hypotension if you're starting this medication in a patient with a really high A1C. So I'm talking like 11, 12, 13%. You know, because of that osmotic diuretic effect, you're really, those patients are going to feel that hypotension a lot more than our patients that we would start maybe in eight, eight or nine or 10%. So typically what I've done in practice is use other medications to get those, that hyperglycemia really under control first and then adding on an SGLT2 for that kidney protection. And then in terms of AKI, again, you know, I think A, making sure we're counseling our patients really well, which we'll, we're gonna talk about the counseling points here shortly, um, but actually in, in these trials, AKI for patients who are on the study drug actually had a less incidence of AKI. And then for diabetic ketoacidosis, this really comes from if we're using this medication in our type 1 patients, um, which typically we try to avoid because um, it can be kind of dangerous. But if your patient is type 2 and has, um, you know, multi-dose insulin and things like that, making sure we're counseling them, you know, stay on your insulin um, and making sure that we decrease the risk for that DKA. Canonagliflozin does carry a little bit of a skeletal fragility risk, so making sure we're looking at our patient's history for that. And then amputations has kind of been a little bit of a controversy um, where the FDA actually re recently removed the black box warning for increased risk of amputations. Um, and and I, I think I agree with that just because really in subsequent studies that have been done, the risk had not been significantly increased. And so, you know, maybe in the clinical trials, we it's a lot less now than we originally had thought. Um, so again, counseling patients on good foot hygiene and things like that and having that risk versus benefit conversation with your patients. And then let's get into some clinical pearls. So if we're gonna start this medication in someone who already has kind of that established CKD, 
um, ob obtaining a BMP in the first 10 to 14 days is, is probably a good idea um, just to make sure, you know, um, kidneys are, are happy with the medication, potassium is okay. And we do expect a serum creatinine bump similar to when we start an ACER and ARB, you know, that the um, kidneys are really trying to get used to the medication. So, you know, checking that serum creatinine, as long as it's 30 or less percentage increase in that serum creatinine, totally fine to keep on the drug. Then assessing doses of other volume de depleting medications. So a lot of these patients may have comorbid heart failure and things like that. So they may be on diuretics. Um, in the heart failure trials for some of these um, SGLT2s, they really didn't have a protocol for stopping or reducing the dose of these other diuretics. So, you know, just monitoring. Again, I think that's a really um, important point to come home here. They did show that over time, patients did require a lower dose of their diuretic and making sure that when we are starting this, they are stable on their existing diuretic as well. And like we kind of have talked about this already, but counseling um, on that importance of adequate hydration and making sure patients are staying well hydrated to prevent hypotension, AKI, things of that nature. And making sure we're counseling them on when to hold the dose. And that's really when, you know, we're having decreased oral intake, they're having nausea, severe diarrhea, things like that. And even if they're coming up for a procedure like a colonoscopy or sometime when they're going to be NPO, holding for three days prior to that procedure is going to really decrease the risk for those issues. And just a few more. So, um, you know, administering in the morning due to that diuretic effect is important counseling point because patients will have a little bit increased urination when starting the medication as well as those signs and symptoms of GU tract infections, and even considering decreasing the dose of their insulin if applicable, um, especially if they're well-controlled. I have seen patients kind of dip into that hypoglycemia range. So, you know, con considering maybe a small decrease in their basal insulin, uh, about 5 to 10% at, at the beginning is always a good idea. And consider testing for patients who are on multi-dose insulin testing them for type one, you know, maybe they kind of slip through the cracks and we actually have one of our amazing primary care providers who's um, really well-versed in diabetes doing this. And she's caught some patients that um, are actually type one. And, you know, we wouldn't want to start that medication in type one diabetes. So it's always a good idea just to rule that out. And counseling on proper foot hygiene for all patients, but especially our higher risk patients as well. So that kind of brings us to the end of our SGLT2s. Uh, we're going to also talk about the glucagon-like peptide 1 agonists, and that's our GLP-1s. So again, as you may know, this is a diabetes medication, and you know it works to increase insulin secretion, as well as works in the brain and the gut to increase satiety and delay gastric emptying. And it has some indirect CKD benefits, of course, improving glucose, weight loss, blood pressure reduction, all things we talked about in the first section. And also there are some proposed direct CKD mechanisms as well. So very similar to the SGLT2s, restoration of that tubular camillary feedback, as well as hyperfiltration reduction and pressure reduction. So we actually don't have any current CKD or excuse me, kidney outcome trials for these medications. We kind of have to go on what was done in the CBOTs. Um, and so we're going to talk about just quickly three of those, the leader trial with daily liraglutide, Sustain 6 with weekly subcutaneous semaglutide and rewind trial with weekly dilaglutide. Again, these were all done in patients with type 2 diabetes and pretty similar, um, you know, background characteristics, similar GFRs, um, 
similar micro, micro and macroalbuminuria. And the kidney composite, those secondary outcomes were very similar to our other kidney outcome trials uh, with the caveat of that new macroalbuminuria developing that. And so all of these medications were um, you know, significant with a number needed to treat, as you can see listed there. And those were all really driven by decreasing the risk for um, onset of new macroalbuminuria, which we have talked about already, you know, can really um, kind of sway us one way or the other, whether we're at an increased risk of end-stage kidney disease or not. Um, you may be noticing too, these are only three of multiple G GLP-1s that we have on the market. Um, I just wanted to mention a couple of things. So the exenatide ER, that one actually didn't have very significant cardiovascular benefits, but it had very similar kidney benefits for our patients, um, you know, again, decreasing the risk for that development of new macroalbuminuria. So if you have a patient, you're kind of, you know, insurance coverage issues and, you know, exenatide ER is the only option, you can kind of sleep easy at night knowing that, you know, you are still providing some kind of kidney protection there. And then lastly, um, semaglutide is actually enrolling, doing a trial right now called the FLOW trial, actually doing something similar with our, our credence and our EMPA kidney, having those specific primary outcomes for kidneys. All right, so our benefits of GLP-1s. I also just want to clear the air. These are not FDA approved for CKD. Um, these are approved for type 2 diabetes. But as you can see, they really do help, again, add to decreasing the risk for progression. You know, that average A1C lowering is, is quite good with these agents, 1 to 1.5%, as well as average weight loss being anywhere from 5 to 10% um, at those higher doses. And even with our newest agent, the GLP-GIP trisepatide, getting 15 to 20% body weight reduction. And these medications can actually be started when we're really more severely um, renally impaired as well. So using in a GFR of 15 mils per minute is, is totally fine with no dose adjustment for liraglutide, dilaglutide, and semaglutide. We also can use these medications, again, because they're not renally cleared in our patients with dialysis, but of course, you know, making sure we're doing good monitoring and using them cautiously. So adverse effects and some clinical pearls that I wanted to share. As you all, as you all know, GI side effects is the biggest with these medications. Um, so nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal cramping, things of that nature. And you know, how do we really mitigate those for our patients? What are some good counseling points there? You know, making sure patients are eating slowly, having smaller portions, you know, stopping when they feel full, avoiding those overly greasy, heavy, spicy meals. Um, and nausea really, and a lot of these um, adverse effects really start to wane in the first few weeks as the body starts to get used to the medication. However, there's always those some, some patients that are a little bit slower in kind of getting used to the medication. So a slower titration of those medications is totally fine. You know, the package insert suggests, you know, for loragotide, increase in dose every week, for the weeklies every month. But we really can extend those intervals if we want to make sure our patients um, will have success on these medications. As well as, you know, patients, there have been some anecdotal evidence for patients who were not doing so well on weekly GLP-1s, actually tolerating those daily smaller doses, um, GLP-1s like liraglutide. So just a consideration. As well as avoiding these medications in pancreatitis, patients who've had the history or are at risk, like of triglycerides, you know, pretty high triglycerides of at or, five, at or um, above 500 is kind of where I have a cutoff. And then again, decreasing insulin doses upon initiation, just considering that depending on their control. 
I also just want to highlight maybe like, okay, why is this girl talking about GLP-1s when they're not even CKD approved? Well, it really comes from the ADA guidelines. And the newest guideline update really was focusing on what are, we need to make sure that for first line therapy, it's really dependent on the patient's comorbidities. And we kind of put them into three buckets, ASCBD, heart failure, and CKD. So we'll highlight the CKD section, but you know, it really says, okay, go ahead, start that SGLT2 that we know has kidney benefit. Um, and then if they're not tolerating it very well, or they're contraindicated, start a GLP-1 with CVD benefit, because it really can help, again, decrease the risk for some of that progression. And lastly, this kind of brings us to our last renal protective medication that I wanted to discuss, venerinone, which is a mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist, or an MRA. Historically, MRAs like spironolactone and blarinone have really had an unreliable effect on GFR, and really the risk of using those medications really outweighed the, um, you know, of hyperkalemia really outweighed the benefit. And so venerinone is a little bit different. It's selective, it's non-steroidal, and it's really more balanced between the heart and the kidney in terms of distribution. And actually, if you look at structure as well, it looks more like a calcium channel blocker than a spironolactone. It's less lipophilic, has a shorter half-life, and there's no active metabolites, which can help to, which is thought to help decrease some of those risks for hyperkalemia. And it also suggests more of an anti-inflammatory and antifibrotic effect. It is FDA-approved for CKD associated with type 2 diabetes. So in the interest of time, we're going to just chat about the one kidney outcome trial. It was basically a pooled analysis of the phase three clinical trials called Fidelity. And those two three, uh, phase three trials were Fidelio DKD and Figaro DKD, looking at both cardiovascular and kidney outcomes. So patients were enrolled in these trials if they had type 2 diabetes, GFR was 25 or more, their serum potassium was 4.8 or less, and patients were excluded if they had heart failure. Again, you can see the population is, is very large for this um, study, uh, combined 13, over 13,000 patients with a mean follow-up of three years. And you know, in terms of GFR, mean GFR was a moderately impaired at 57, and CVD history was just less than half. And so they looked at the CV composite, very similar to our other CVOTs that we um, that have been done for many other medications. So number needed to treat there was 59, and that was really you know driven by reduction of heart failure hospitalizations. Then the kidney composite um, composed of kidney failure, and then also 57% um, or more decrease in the GFR, as well as death from kidney causes. And the number needed to treat was 63. And it was actually driven by two things, driven by the reduction in kidney failure, again, we, something that we think is very important, as well as reduction of getting that 57% or more decrease in GFR. <laughs> And then for hyperkalemia, um, it was more prominent in our finerinone group of 14% versus placebo at 6.9%. So I just want to go over dosing quickly, just because it is a little bit more unique than some of our other medications. Um, so again, we're making sure we're starting these medications in patients who have type 2 diabetes, CKD, a GFR of 25 or more, and making sure we're checking that serum potassium before we start, making sure it's 4.8 or less. And then we kind of go through dosing of, okay, what's their GFR and start there. Then we need to check a serum potassium within four weeks because that's going to really tell us where, okay, guide the rest of the dosing, where are we gonna go from here? Um, again, not gonna read every, every line on the slide here, but just so for your awareness, what we would do for certain, um, where they started and where they're going.
So where's the place in therapy? So KDIGO guidelines were really the first to explicitly talk about using finerenone, but ADA guidelines also came along. Um, and again, using these in patients with type 2 diabetes, CKD, um, as well as having albuminuria despite being on that max tolerated RAS inhibitor. And then you can add it on in addition to a patient being an SGLT2, but also if those patients can't tolerate an SGLT2 or it's contraindicated. Some clinical pearls, um, it does have some blood pressure reduction, not a whole lot, but hey, you know, every little bit helps sometimes for some patients. Um, pretty well tolerated as well, that hyperkalemia that we talked about, hypotension and hyponatremia. And then making sure we're not combining the use of these, this medication with patients taking spironolactone or epilirinone. This hasn't been studied in heart failure. There is a trial that's currently going on studying in heart failure, but we don't have results at this point. So that's going to bring us to a patient case just to test our knowledge with all of these different renal protective therapies. So DS is a 67-year-old African-American male with type 2 diabetes, CKD, BPH, and a 20-pack year history who quit in 2018. His medications include metformin, max dose, lisinopril 40, rosuvastatin 20, and tamsulosin 0.4. His A1C is currently 7.6, GFR is 43, urine to albumin creatinine ratio is 58, BMI is 28, and 10-year ASCVD risk is 23.3%. I also um, did go ahead and calculate a kidney risk factor or kidney failure risk calculator, um, threw this all in there, and um, his risk is 18% in the next five years. So knowing all of that, which of the following is the best choice to optimize the patient's therapy and decrease progression of chronic kidney disease? Seems like we're pretty unanimous here. So yes, I agree. B is the correct answer. So, um, you know, let's kind of talk through this a little bit and kind of my rationale for this answer. So um, adding SGLT2, I think his kidney disease takes precedence. He's already on a max tolerated RAS. He's on that 40 milligrams of lisinopril. He still has um, microalbuminuria and his A1C isn't fully controlled. Um, so adding SGLT2, I think would be what we, I would do first. And then of course, decreasing his metformin dose, we have to cut that in half as his GFR is 45 or less. Um, as, as we kind of get towards more renal impairment, we may not be able to milk as much glucose lowering effect from the SGLT2, um, but, you know, we'll kind of have to see how the patient responds. I think that, you know, maybe next, if, you know, he's not at that less than 7%, okay, maybe let's add a GLP-1. That would help with weight. But again, the SGLT2 is going to help with his um, high cardiovascular risk as well. Um, and then adding finerenone, I think, you know, at this point, let's try the SGLT2 first, see how it goes. And then that could be something either that if he wasn't tolerating it well, or, you know, we needed to add it on, that could be something done in the future. Awesome job, guys. All right, so that brings us to kind of the last section of the, today's presentation is what is our role as the pharmacist supporting our patients? So making sure we're optimizing those current therapies, making sure they're on a max tolerated RAS inhibitor, um, and then also considering if they're on Losartan, switching to a more um, longer half-life or more potent uh, ARB like Talmasartan or Candasartan as well as initiating and managing those renal protective therapies. You know, um, our outpatient clinics at Mayo Clinic have a really um, robust CPA, which we can use to really take ownership of these patients and start those medications. And then assisting in any financial barriers that the patient might have as well. These are all brand name medications and can be expensive, um, but of course, helping our patients through that.
And then managing the contributing disease states. You know, y'all have we. I gave y'all a list of all the different disease states that can contribute to CKD, and make sure we're managing those appropriately. As well as patient education, up to 74% of patients with CKD have non-adherence. And, you know, making sure that we're talking through patients, overcoming those barriers, giving them the tools to do so, to make sure that they are taking them therapies as best as possible. And then reviewing other medications they may be on and dose reducing when and if needed. So we kind of mentioned metformin, um, you know, reducing that dose by half if their GFR is 45 or less. And making sure we're stopping the metformin once it drops um, less than 30. And then any other medications that may need dose reduction. And then discontinuing and counseling on patients avoiding nephrotoxic agents like NSAIDs, lithium, certain antibiotics, and herbals too. And then again, using that, that robust CP, CPA to order labs and you know, do those twice yearly assessments of kidney function as well as electrolytes. And then as the disease progresses or we have patients who have more severe CKD, making sure we're checking those anemia and bone mineral labs as well. In terms of non-pharmacologic management, you know, sodium intake, decreasing that to, or trying to restrict that to less than two grams per day and avoiding salt substitutes, you know, um, things like with extra potassium that wouldn't be good, especially further down the line in CKD. Historically, protein intake, you know, they had said, okay, let's restrict protein intake for these patients. But more recent studies have shown that it really doesn't significantly do anything. So okay to just have, you know, the the normal 0.8 grams per kg per day, just make sure we're not overdoing it to more, no more than 1.3 grams per kg per day. And as we get our patients with later stage CKD, um, limiting dietary potassium and phosphorus, just to make sure we're helping balance fluids, electrolytes, and minerals. Of course, as we tell all patients, moderate intensity and physical activity at least 150 minutes per week, but tobacco cessation as well. We kind of talked about that um, and counseling and supporting patients through that and starting medical therapy if needed. But just being aware that a lot of these medications are renally cleared. So, um, you know, varenicline needs that dose reduction in patients who have a creatinine clearance of less than 30. Bupropion's max dose is 150 um, milligrams per day in patients with a creatinine clearance of less than 60, as well as, you know, if we start those nicotine replacement therapies, just being cautious, counseling on nicotine toxicity, um, because those are renally cleared as well. So that brings us to our final question today. What can a pharmacist do to support a patient with CKD? Awesome. Again, another unanimous, an unanimous answer. I totally agree. I want to make it easy on you all and just highlight what pharmacists can do. We can prescribe those renal protective therapies, really take ownership of those, um, order labs for monitoring, and of course, counseling our patients on lifestyle modifications. So D, all of the above is correct. So some key takeaways, chronic kidney disease, it really is a progressive disease that can be best managed by prevention and really treating those underlying risk factors and making sure that we're starting those renal protective therapies, SGLT2s, GLP1s, venerinone, if applicable, just because we really have shown that, you know, it can decrease the risk of progression as well as even, um, you know, improving those outcomes that we really care about, especially delaying end-stage kidney disease. And our pharmacists, of course, have a really optimal role in helping our patients. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app, Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.